Amen. All right, Matthew chapter 14. If you have a Bible, uh, open it up. If not, you can uh, have a Bible here on the table. It's our gift to you free. Uh, You can download a Bible app, and we're going to go through uh, a few verses together, uh, starting in verse 1. So Matthew chapter 14, verse 1. Matthew writes this. At this time, uh, sorry, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus. All right, let's just stop there for a second and let me help us understand the context of what is happening. So, so far, Matthew's been writing this account of the life and ministry of Jesus. It's similar to, although not identical, to a biographical account. Uh, He is indeed telling us facts about the life of Jesus, but he's doing more than that. He's trying to communicate the reality of who Jesus is as Jesus revealed himself to us, that he is the Messiah, he is the Son of God, he is the one who has come to rescue and and redeem a lost and broken people and restore them back to the way that God intended them to be, but then also to restore the entire world back to the way that God intended the world to be. And so one of the ways that God, that, that, that uh, Jesus rather has been demonstrating who he is is through his miraculous uh, work. So he's been healing people. He's been performing all these miracles. Uh, he's been teaching and preaching. So like a long time ago, we went through the Sermon on the Mount and many people uh, heard Jesus teach uh, and preach. And so what's happening here is as Jesus is doing these things, as he's becoming uh, more and more popular, uh, he's, he's garnering like a bit of a following. Like word is starting to spread about him. Uh, and, and what's happening is people are starting to ask this very specific question, who is Jesus? Like, who is this guy? What's up with him? Like, if he was here today, these are the questions we would ask about him. We wouldn't just, you, you know, even, even if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, a believer in Jesus, and, and this, this kind of picture of Jesus showed up in the city of Victoria, you would, you would have that question. It wouldn't be a foregone conclusion that you would just start following him and, and love him. And so that's what's happening. People are asking, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? What's up with him? In fact, if you go back to last week, Matthew chapter 13 in verse 54, there was this question that the people were asking. Uh, They said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Pointing specifically to his teaching and to his wondrous works. And Matthew's in this section where he's trying to show us that there's many different responses that people had to Jesus. In fact, Not that anyone asked, but if they wanted to know, what I would do with this story is I would probably bump chapter 14 down a little bit and include this story that we're about to read in chapter 13 because what Matthew is going to do here is he's going to show us Herod's response to that question, who is Jesus? So Jesus has this following, and this man named Herod, Herod the Tetrarch, hears. He hears about what Jesus is doing. Now, it's important for us to have some sense or context of of who Herod is so that we can better understand the way Matthew is going to describe how he deals with the Jesus question. So you'll notice here in verse 14, or chapter 14, verse 1, that he's referred to as Herod the Tetrarch. Now, a lot of times, especially if you're familiar with the Bible, you hear the name Herod and you immediately associate it with the Herod that is referenced in chapter 2. In chapter 2, we have the story of the birth of Jesus, and there's uh, Herod who wants to prevent Jesus from being born. He attempts to have Jesus murdered. That is not this Herod. That's a different Herod. In fact, this Herod is the son of that Herod. And and notice that, that here Matthew refers to this Herod as Herod the Tetrarch. That word Tetrarch literally means a fourth or a quarter. And so Herod the Tetrarch was one of Herod's four children. And he was given... Uh, a fourth of his father's, not his inheritance, but his authority. And on the surface, this sounds like he's a really powerful guy. He's got 
all kinds of uh, authority, and he can wield that any way he wants. But the reality is, functionally, he wasn't that at all. He was sort of like middle management when it comes to government, right? Like, he's got a whole bunch of people above him who he's accountable to, and he really can't make any decisions without sending a whole bunch of memo, memos and waiting to get a response. Like, he's just more of a figurehead, actually. And what's interesting about this specific Herod, Herod the Tetrarch, is that he, so he's got this power that he, or sorry, he has this position, like this kind of positional authority. It's a bit of a figurehead position, but he desperately wants power. And as we'll see, as the story goes on, not only does he desperately want power, but he's actually deeply insecure. He's an incredibly insecure man. And so this is like a recipe for disaster. So it's this Herod who hears about Jesus, and look at what he says in verse 2. Look at what Matthew writes in verse 2. It says, and he said to his attendants, so Herod hears about Jesus, here's what he says about him, this is John the Baptist, he has risen from the dead, and this is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now there's a whole bunch of reasons why this is his response, and, and we'll get to the specifics of his response, why he specifically attributes uh, all of Jesus' teaching, his wisdom, and his works to John the Baptist. We'll come back to that in just a second. But I want you to notice something about what Herod does here. He hears about Jesus. He hears about this man who's doing these things. Things are being said about him. They're miraculous works, his great teaching. And first, see what he doesn't do. He doesn't just dismiss him. He doesn't just put him off or, or push him away. He, he, he has to account for him in some way. He has to come up with a reason or an excuse or, or something. He has to do something with Jesus. And I don't want you to miss that point. Because Matthew's point in this entire section that we've been working through is that it's, it's really not an option to be ambivalent about Jesus. It's really not an option to say, well, that's good for you, but it's not good for me. Which is like a classic... West Coast Victoria answer to that question, right? See, Matthew's asking us to consider a very specific question, who is Jesus? And what he's saying is you have to come up with something. You can't just discard or dismiss him. And notice what Herod does. He, he attributes the, the works of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus to John the Baptist. So he's not, it's kind of like the flip side of the hard skeptic, right? The hard skeptic would hear that there's a guy doing miraculous works. There's, there's this man, Jesus, who's doing these things. And the hard skeptic would, would start to ask questions and say like, well, you know, can we, can we actually, do, is there such thing as miracles? Can we prove that these things actually occur? But, but Herod doesn't do that. He embraces the supernatural. He embraces the, the metaphysical, if you will. He embraces the idea that there's a God, that these, these, these forces, these powers, these realities are at play in our world, but then he doesn't, he's not willing to ascribe them to Jesus. He has to come up with something else. He has to figure out some loophole in the system to, to give reason to why these things are actually occurring. Sounds a lot like what we experience in our current cultural moment. I mean, we, we talk about this a lot, but the current cultural moment that we live in, and, and I would say, you know, not to get too, too nerdy or technical here, but in the last probably four or five years specifically, there has been a shift. There has been a significant seismic shift in the way that people think about spiritual things. If you have uh, conversations 
with people that don't know Jesus, my suspicion is if you're anything like me, you're not running into people as often who are what I would call hard skeptics. There definitely are still some hard skeptics who completely reject out of hand the idea of any metaphysical uh, you know, ideologies or beliefs, any supernatural beliefs. Those people still exist. But more often than not, the people that I encounter, they believe in a supernatural. They, they believe in some kind of metaphysical reality. They believe that there is some kind of God out there. They're not wrestling with, does God exist? They're asking different questions. They're asking, what do we account, how do we account for all the things that we experience you know, and we use like really weird words to describe it, right? Like the human spirit, mother nature. Like we have all these ways of trying to account for the things that are so clearly, in my opinion, coming directly from the hand of God. You don't have to look too far. I mean, if you look at um, our, our, the AA program, for example, and I'm not, I'm not shooting down the AA program. I think it helps a lot of people. It's very much helpful and good. And good. I'm treading lightly here. I feel like I'm threading a bit of a needle. Uh, but, but there's a reality in which they're willing to appeal to the divine or to a higher power, but not name the higher power as Jesus. They've recognized that for people to get well and, and to be healed from their sickness, they need something outside of themselves. But they're not willing to identify that as Jesus. Why? Because that's offensive and that is off-putting to people. We see this in First Nations spirituality. All of your kids are going to learn First Nations spirituality in school. Every class they take. And again, I'm not, saying, I'm not making a political comment here, okay? So don't, don't hold me to anything. I'm just saying, what is Indigenous or First Nations spirituality? It's an attempt to account for what we see in the world. We have mindfulness. We have meditation, meditative practices. These things are very popular. Very popular. You can get apps on your phone now that will actually encourage you, help you meditate. These are secular apps. These are apps, if if you're familiar with this world at all, there's a a man by the name of Sam Harris who who is anti-religion. But if you listen to his podcast, which I do, he has an advertisement at the beginning of every single one of his podcasts where he advertises an app that is produced by him and his team that helps people meditate and practice mindfulness. Why? Because he's recognized that the, the, the atheist answer to the world is not actually fulfilling like the longings of the human heart. I mean, this is why people love to hike. People that don't know Jesus love to hike, and they, they look out, and they, they, they just feel these, they have these moments of transcendence. What is that? We, uh, we would say that's Jesus, that's God, that's the Spirit of God stirring your affections, right? This general revelation where God's revealing to you his spiritual but not religious West Coaster It's Mother Nature. It's the universe speaking to me. Even the atheist camp, as I've already alluded to, is starting to recognize that the story that they are telling does not make sense of the lived human experience. And so if you were to go, I don't know if this is on Netflix anymore, but Neil deGrasse Tyson, who's one of the foremost uh, atheists and scientists and does a really good job of teaching science in a way that's accessible to people, he has a, a Netflix documentary or had a Netflix documentary called Cosmos. And in there, he gets asked the question, uh, what is the meaning of the universe? What is the purpose or the meaning of, of you know, human experience, our, our lives? And, and his answer, it's, it's almost comical. Because what he should say, if, he, if he's going to toe the line of his worldview, is 
You know, you're a cosmic accident. The universe is a cold, hard, dark place, and it doesn't care about you at all. So go on and enjoy life. But that doesn't sell well. And I think over time, he's realized that doesn't actually resonate with his own story, his own human experience, and certainly the human experience of of most people. So he, he says, well, this is kind of, you know, my rendition of his answer. He says, well, we know that, you know, that everything comes from a single point, a point of singularity, like one single point the universe started from. And so what that means is, is we all share the same atoms, like A-T-O-M-S, atoms. Just notice the irony of that just now in this moment, actually. Um, And so what that means for us is that this is one giant cosmic human embrace. And that's the meaning of life. I mean, that's like Lion King theology, right? This is the circle of life. Like, this is, this is the meaning, this is the purpose of life. Well, why does he do that? Because he recognizes that there's, there's something out there. He recognizes that there's more than just cold, hard data. And it doesn't make sense the way he is, you know, looking at the world relative to his experience. And so he has to do something with these experiences, but he's not willing to say, Jesus. So he's got to come up with an alternate explanation that makes no sense in light of the worldview that he holds. Think about this with me for a second. You can have conversations with people, right? We just came out of the Christmas season. We can have conversations about all kinds of things, all kinds of spiritual things. But the second you bring Jesus into the conversation, what happens? Stops. Why? people are not willing to ascribe the mighty works of God to God. They're willing to settle for counterfeits in place of the real thing. And that's exactly what Herod's doing here. I mean, the area that he governed over was indeed the area where Jesus did his ministry. It's where he performed his miracles. It's where he taught. Herod would have been very familiar with Jesus. And yet he was willing to come up with what I think is one of the most ridiculous alternate ever heard. Why? Because he didn't want to admit that Jesus is God. And what's Matthew trying to say to us here? He's trying to say, you, you can't hedge your bets on this question. You can try, you can put it off, you can avoid, you can deflect, you can make excuses. But at some point, you have to answer the question, who is Jesus? At some point, you have to answer the question of verse 54, where did this man get his wisdom in these miraculous powers? So why, let's go to the specifics of Herod's response. Why does he attribute the works of Jesus to John the Baptist and the resurrected John the Baptist. So let's go down to verse 3. Now, what's going to happen here? This is going to get a little weird, okay? So you got to understand what Matthew's doing here. So verses 1 and 2 are real time. 
where Matthew's actually explaining something that happens in real time. The rest of this text, chapter uh, verse 3 rather to verse 12, is now like a flashback. So like, right? Like, and now we're going back in time to something that happened previous. Okay, so, so here's what Matthew records about the interaction between uh, Herod and John the Baptist. He says this, Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother, uh, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, It's not lawful for you to have her. And Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John the pro, uh, John a prophet. Now, let me just unpack this here for a second. I got to do a whole bunch of unpacking to, to make the point that Matthew's trying to make here. So you, you kind of have to understand uh, what is happening. So, so Herod was married to a woman named Herodias, okay? Now that's, I don't know what their celebrity name would be, but so, so Herod and Herodias are married, but who is Herodias? Well, Matthew tells us Herodias is his brother Philip's wife. So history tells us that Herod went to visit his brother Philip, and while he was visiting his brother Philip, he saw his brother Philip's wife, and he was like, ta I like her. Uh, I'm going to take her from you. And so he steals his brother's wife from his brother and makes uh, makes her his, his wife. Now, now, not only is it his brother's wife, it's also his stepniece. Okay, so this, just forewarning, if your kids are in here, we have a great program down there called West Village Kids, because this is going to get Jerry Springer plus uh, Maury Povich uh, plus spring break here in just a couple minutes, okay? So, so this is who Herod's married to. He's married to his stepniece, who's also his brother's ex-wife, okay? Follow the bouncing ball. And you thought your family put the fun in dysfunctional. Here we go. So John, who is John the Baptist from Matthew chapter 3, who prepares the way for the coming of Jesus, he's also a prophet. And prophets, if you know prophets, man, those guys were surly. Like, they did not, well, one of the things a prophet did is that they would not tolerate anything that was, like, counter to the way that God would have people live. So if a prophet was in town, uh, he would preach, and, and it, was, it did not end well for many of the Old Testament prophets, of which John is in the line of. And so John sees Herod and Herodias, he knows what's going on, and he starts preaching against this marriage of theirs because it's unlawful. They shouldn't be together. And of course, Herod and Herodias, they, they're, they're not big fans of John because of this. So notice what Matthew says. It says, Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid. Verse 5. He was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. So, so Matthew's starting to unthread for us the reality of what goes on inside the heart of Herod. So again, Herod, middle-level manager, longs for authority, deeply insecure. Here he finds himself, and the way this would have gone down is Herod and Herodias would have been like coming through the public square, and John the Baptist was like the crazy guy, right? If you go back to Matthew chapter 3, lived in the forest, ate locusts, like didn't wash his hair, like, prophets were, they were odd ducks. I don't know if you've seen Tim Sparrow out in the lobby lately, but he's got, like, the fro and the beard. Tim Sparrow's like a modern-day prophet. There he is over there. He's loving the shout-out. Okay, so just think of Tim Sparrow, but, like, eating locusts. And Herod and Herodias come through town, and John the Baptist, in front of everybody, starts calling out their unlawful marriage. So he's publicly shaming them. So Herod finds himself in this predicament. Again, remember, longs for power, deeply insecure. He finds himself in this predicament. He's got this wife who's saying, like, we got to do something about this guy because I'm not a huge fan of what's going on here. 
But at the same time, Herod wants power and to take care of John. Why? Because the people loved John. They loved him. So he's finding himself between a rock and a hard place, if you will. Story goes on. Gets better. Gets better. Verse 6. On Herod's birthday. Now, let me just, again, stop here for a second. First, first century, uh, you know, Greco-Roman world, birthday parties were not, you know, birthday candles, happy birthday to you, and now we're going to give you your birthday bumps, right? Like, this is not everyone's wearing, like, a little party hat and having fun playing kid games. This is, this is not what's going on here. Like, these were, this was a, a birthday party in the first century would have been like a pagan ceremony. Like, it was debaucherous, as you will see. So, on Herod's birthday... The daughter of Herodias, so again, follow the bouncing ball, this is his, uh, this is his stepdaughter, okay? And, and history tells us her name's uh, Solomi, not Salami, but Solomi. Uh, she's between uh, the age of 12 and 14, so she's like roughly your average middle schooler, okay? So the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests, and this, again, this wasn't like, you know, the chicken dance or the Macarena or something, like, this is, uh, like, sexual dancing. This is seductive dancing. We're at a birthday party. It's full of, like, uh, notaries, dignitaries, politicians. Here's Herod, his, his brother's ex-wife's daughter, who's in middle school, is dancing sexually at his birthday party. And note what it says next. It pleased Herod. I don't know any of the Greek words here, but I think you know what this is alluding to, right? He, he's, he's like finding his, his, his stepdaughter, his middle school-age stepdaughter, sexually attractive in this moment. So like, again, this is like as debaucherous as it gets. So much so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. So at this point, like he's not thinking straight, right? Like, I'm just going to stop there for a minute. So he promised on oath to give her whatever she asked. So just imagine the scene. Let's make sure we're on the same page here. So here's Herod. He's at his birthday party. It's pagan. It's debaucherous. His 12, his middle, his middle school, a 12-year-old stepdaughter's dancing sexually. He's, he's attracted to her. He's got like a, you know, like a turkey leg in one hand, he's got a beer in the other hand, he's drunk, he's fat, he's happy, he's enjoying the moment, right? Again, longs for power, deeply insecure. He's got all this attention, he's got all this affection, it's all about him. He's loving this moment, it's so great, it's so great. And what happens? I mean, this is like the, the perfect moment of weakness. He says, I'm going to give you whatever you want, Like right? This is not like this is the equivalent of like, I don't know, drunk texting like your ex-girlfriend at two in the morning or something. Like you're not like your best self in this moment. Okay, so he's making bad, bad, bad decisions here. Verse, uh, verse eight, prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. So Herodias sees all this happening and she says I see an opportunity here I really want this man dead here we go go Herodias tell Herod that this is what we want we want John the Baptist's head on a platter now look at what it says here verse 9 the king was distressed he was distressed why was he distressed why wouldn't he just give up the head on a platter what was the the nature of What's going on here? Again, remember, 
Herod longing for acceptance, longing for power. He's, it's not politic, politically expedient for him to have John the Baptist killed. But look at what it says here. But because of the oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that the request be granted. So what does he do? He says, you know what? I got all these people in front of me. I don't want to look silly in front of them. I don't want to look like a fool in front of all these people. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to have John the Baptist killed. And that's what happens. Verse 10. He had John beheaded in prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. Now here is an interesting question. (laughs) What does this have to do with Jesus? Remember what Matthew is trying to show us here, right? If you go back to verses 1 and 2, in verse 54, where does this man get wisdom and power from? In other words, Matthew is saying, you know, he's calling us to answer the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Who do you say Jesus is? What's your response to Jesus? And he's showing us Herod's response to Jesus. What he's trying to do here is give us a a peek into the heart of Herod and give us a, a sense of why Herod would reject Jesus, why he wouldn't attribute or ascribe all these miraculous powers and all this wisdom to Jesus, why he wouldn't identify him as God. And here's what, here's what Matthew's trying to show you is that there's this conflict that arises inside the heart of Herod. There's this conflict of desires where he, there's a sense in which he knows what's right. There's a sense in which he knows what he should do, but then he's got all these, you know, hashtag real world problems all around him. He's got a a job to keep up. He's got a wife to keep happy. He's got all these people he wants to think well of him. And these things are doing, like they're they're just, boom, colliding inside of his heart. What am I going to do? How how am I going to figure this out? You see, what, what Herod wanted at the end of the day was everything. He wanted it all. He wanted his cake and he wanted to eat it too, if you will. He wanted to be able to steal his brother's wife and not hear about it from John. He wanted to be able to be debaucherous. He wanted to be able to have sex with his middle school-aged stepdaughter. He wanted to have power. He wanted to have And John, John represented the heart of God. That he would call Herod to something else. And Herod said, I don't want to have anything to do with that. In other words, what Herod's saying is, I'm, I'm willing to receive Jesus, but it has to be on my terms. I, I, will, I will receive him as long as I can still have and do whatever it is that I want. And here's the reality for Herod is, if, if if he thought the, the call of John on his life was too significant that he was willing to do whatever he needed to do to get rid of John, when Jesus comes on the scene, Jesus calls people like Herod, people like you and me, to far greater than John the Baptist would ever call us to. Right? Like Jesus says crazy things like, if anyone would be my disciple, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And so there's this, there's this reality for Herod, but it's also a reality for us that we, ha- we have to wrestle with. It's that we love Jesus as Savior, but do we love him as Lord? We love this idea of a Jesus who will you know, die and, 
and, and go to the cross for us and offers us unending grace and unending mercy. And he, he definitely does those things. And we're so thankful for those things. But do we love him as Lord? Do we, do we love the Jesus that, that calls us to give all of our lives to him? Where we're willing to put down our own desires, the things that we really want for him. And in this case, it seems obvious, right? It seems obvious that Herod's desires were, were fallen. They were broken. They were so self-centered. But I think if we just dig a little bit beneath the veneer of our own hearts, we realize that we're actually not that much different than Herod. Maybe outwardly we look very different, and we do. But inwardly, so many of our wants and desires are selfish. Really, if we're honest, inwardly, so many of our wants and desires, they may actually be good things. But they're things that we elevate above God himself, and we make them ultimate things. And that makes them a bad thing. So the question we have to wrestle with when it comes to what Matthew is calling us to this morning when he says, who is Jesus? You know, it, it might not be. It might not be, do we believe that he is God? But it might be, are we willing to come to him on his terms and not our own? Are we willing to come to him and humbly lay down our lives at his feet and say, it's all yours. You get it all. See, there's something interesting that happens here in the life of Herod. As he continues to dodge the Jesus question, he comes to this place in his life where he ultimately can dodge it no longer. So the story ends here, verse uh, verse 12 Matthew records John's disciples came, took his body, buried it, and then they went and told Jesus. And this is the end of the story of Herod and John the Baptist, but it's not the end of the story of Herod and Jesus. If you have your Bibles, go over to Luke chapter 23. In Luke chapter Herod, but now he's having an interaction with Jesus himself. And here is what he says. And here's how that interaction goes. Luke chapter 23, picking up in verse 8. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? He hears about Jesus way back in Matthew chapter 14. He hears about all that he's done. But here he sees him and he's greatly pleased because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he had hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. I don't want to read too much into what Luke records here, but you kind of get this sense here that Herod looks at Jesus kind of no differently here in Matthew chapter 23 than he does way back in Matthew chapter 14, right? Just as this miracle worker, as this religious guru, as some guy who can perform parlor tricks for him. Nothing more, nothing less. Look at what it says in verse 9. He, he plied him with many questions. He asked him many, many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. 
The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him, and then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him, dressing him in an elegant robe, but they sent him back to Pilate. Don't miss what's going on here. Herod and Jesus are literally sitting face to face. Matthew chapter 14, Herod hears about Jesus. He kind of, you know, dismisses the idea that he could actually be God, ascribes it all to John the Baptist. Here now he's sitting face to face with Jesus himself. Jesus has done many more miracles at this point. His following's far greater. And you can kind of hear it, can't you? In, in 23, chapter 23 of Luke's gospel, there's kind of this like cavalier nature or cavalierness in Herod towards Jesus. Like, oh, it's great to see you, man. How you doing? Having a good day? I was hoping you are going to do a miracle or two for me. Doesn't that sound a lot like how we view Jesus today? Like he's a, he's a really nice idea in the marketplace. Like he's one of the many religious or spiritual gurus out there. Jesus and Oprah and whoever. And, and really we treat Jesus kind of like he's you know, like a fortune cookie and he just kind of spits out religious platitudes to us and we take the ones we like and the ones we don't like, we crumple them up and we throw them out. Or maybe we toss up the odd 911 prayer, right? Like, could you perform a miracle for me, Jesus? Right? I've heard about you. I've heard, you know, eh, we could really use a little help on this one. I don't want you to miss something. I don't want you to miss this. It's so important. Pilate is sitting right in front of Jesus. Herod, rather, is sitting right in front of Jesus. And it says here that he sent him back to Pilate. When Jesus goes back to Pilate, what happens? Pilate has him executed. What's my point? The cavalier nature with which Herod treated the question, who is Jesus? led him to the place where he was sitting face to face with him. And he sent him off to his death. In other words, for us, there comes a point where we can treat Jesus with such contempt, with such such a cavalier nature that we may not actually kill him. But he has no place in our lives anymore. He has no authority. We just walk away. And you'll fake it for a while. You'll come, you'll smile, you'll shake hands, you'll kiss babies, you'll do all the, all the things you're supposed to do. And outwardly it'll look great, but inwardly there's a slow death that's dying. Because you've done exactly what Herod has done and you've just pushed Jesus away. I want you, Jesus, but I want you on my terms. Perform a miracle or two for me, Jesus. Or else I'm going to send you away. You know, what's interesting about this is on the surface, it looks like Herod 
sends Jesus away to be killed. There's kind of this beautiful reversal that takes place here. It's not, it's not that Herod sends Jesus away to be killed because Jesus tells us in other places throughout the gospel narratives that nobody takes his life from him, but he lays down his life of his own accord, of his own will. And so, so really what's hap- happening here is not so much that Herod is having Jesus killed so much as Jesus is allowing himself to go to the cross. There's kind of this great reversal where it appears as though Herod's in control, Herod has authority, and Herod is making all of this happen when really what is going on here is Jesus is saying, Herod, I know you're broken. I know you have all these unrighteous desires for power and for authority. I know you're insecure. I know you stole your your brother's wife. I know you wanted to sleep with your stepdaughter. That's why I came. That's why I'm sitting here in this moment. First, to give you an opportunity to repent, but then second, to go to the cross for you, to give my life for you. See, it's not Herod who's killing Jesus. It's Jesus who's dying for people like Herod. Don't miss this. We want to to put Jesus in this category of religious guru and treat him like one of the ideas in the marketplace. And Jesus is going, not only am I so much more worthy of that because I'm God, I'm so much more worthy than that because I'm better. I'll actually give my life for you. I'll forgive you. I'll love you. I'll invite you to come and follow me despite what you have done. The beautiful reality of Jesus is not only does he call us to lay down all of our lives to him because he's God, he then in his kindness, in his mercy, in his grace, enters into the brokenness of our world and gently woos us with his person to come and follow him. And so this isn't Jesus saying, I'm God, give your life to me. He's saying, I'm God. I'm going to give my life for you. Don't you want to give your life to me? And so the question that we have to answer, that Matthew wants us to answer, is who is Jesus? Who is he? What part of your life are you keeping back from him? Maybe it's for the first time you just need to like throw yourself down at his feet because you recognize, man, I'm just so broken and lost and I need Jesus. Or maybe you've been here for a long time and you, you just recognize there are parts of my life that I've just said, you know what, Jesus, you don't get to have those. There's these conflicting desires and I'm not willing to humbly submit these things to you. Matthew wants you to come to this place where you will see that Jesus is worth giving all of our lives, all of our lives to. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you for your grace and mercy. We thank you that you have not left us in our brokenness. You have not left us 
uh, in our sin. You have not left us in the, our depravity. You know, for some of us, like this is like completely new. We, we, we're here, and it's like, uh, yeah, I, I'm Herod. Not maybe, maybe I haven't done what Herod's done, but there's a sense in which I've been avoiding this question for quite some time. And the, and the feelings we can have in those moments are, are shame, guilt, regret, remorse. And Jesus, you, you just say, like, none of that. None of that. I want, I want you. You come right in and you say, come and be with me. Come and sit with me. Come and be my disciple. Come and follow me. Let me, let me love you well. And Lord, for some of us, again, we've been doing this for a long time, and there's parts, there's, there's hurts, there's hang-ups, there's, there's habits, there's, there's things that we, there's unmet expectations that we are holding against you. There's things that we really want that you seem like you won't give to us. And you're saying to us this morning, yes, I'm God and I deserve these things, but you can trust me. You can trust me. So, Spirit, for all of us, right now in this moment, draw us in. We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's children said, amen. I'm going to invite us to stand. We're going to respond. Uh, and at West Village, we, we respond in a, a few different ways. One of the ways we respond is we sing. We hear about the goodness and grace of Jesus, and now we're going we're gonna to sing. We're going to sing about how good Jesus is. Uh, again, one of the things that we've talked about already this morning is we give. And the reason that we give is because we believe Jesus has given so much to us. And so because Jesus has given to us, we in turn give of our money back to him as a way of saying, Jesus, we love you. We trust you. We know that you gave your life for us. Uh, But then we also, every single week, we take communion. And the reason we do this is because we never want to forget the faithfulness of Jesus. That he, he, yes, he's God. Yes, he deserves our worship. But he doesn't just sit up in heaven and say, worship me because I'm God. He actually comes down. He gets up off the throne in heaven, enters, enters into our reality and lays down his life. And the reason we take communion every week is to remember this beautiful reality that God is He's God, but he's a God who's humble, who's loving, who's gracious and kind. And so uh, if you're new, the way that went of each of the rows, and if you're a follower of Jesus... Because when you take communion, really what you're saying is, is, Jesus, I'm taking all of you in. And if you can't say that this morning, then just feel free to stay in your seat, sing, enjoy worshiping Jesus with us. But if you are a follower of Jesus, then this is a sweet moment where, where you can say, I haven't, I haven't given you all of my life. I haven't done that well. But right now in this moment, I... I I repent, 
I receive your forgiveness, and I'm going to try again. And then we'll come back and we'll do it again next week. (laughs) Let's respond together.